Hello and welcome to the Symmetry Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Heather McPaul. Join me for in-depth, down-to-earth, and casual conversations about all things healthy, wealthy, and wise. We delve into topics related to therapy, mental health, relationships, business, and more with guests from all walks of life. And even though I am a professionally licensed counselor, this is just a show. And the information presented is just for informational, educational purposes only. It's definitely not meant to replace getting professional help from a doctor or therapist. So please seek that help from a qualified healthcare professional if you need it. And if it is an emergency, please call 988 or other appropriate emergency services. I'm very excited to bring to you a variety of amazing guests and topics, so let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Symmetry Sessions. Joining me here today is Daniel Zia Joseph, former businessman turned army veteran turned researcher and author, here to discuss his book, Backpack to Rucksack, a roadmap through the rough terrain of leadership and human conflict. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you know, our brief conversation that we had um, a week or two ago in this book, it's got me thinking about my own experiences with leadership in the military, um, how that impacted not just resiliency, but also things like morale and how that all translates into civilian workplaces or could translate into civilian workplaces. Um, Just things like retention and kinship and all of that. But it also got me thinking about like, you know, all the things we can learn from military um, leadership uh, people in those roles, it got me thinking of like the top five things that impacted me the most. And I guess before we get into all that, like, I'm curious about, you know, I know that you're a story collector in, I don't know if you would say that, but, um, you've collected a lot of different stories from a lot of different, um, military personnel about their relationships uh, in the military and with leadership. And I'm just really curious about your actual experiences with leadership in the military. Yeah, well, that's um, an awesome descriptor right there, a story collector. And I found, <laughs> man, just to go on a little tangent on that, what I found was um, the rapport that I had built with combat veterans while, my, while I was in the army. Um, I was a combat engineer. I was in for three and a half years, went by pretty quickly. Um, I was never deployed. I was in a a non-deployable unit. But um, talk about story collecting. I hit a moment of quite a bit of vulnerability and openness with a couple vets that was, um, I guess, serendipitous. I, I didn't expect it to be what it was. But as I went through my own recovery process through some earlier issues in life, um, through therapy and whatnot. And I was discussing essentially what was happening on the mats in jujitsu when I was having some, some flashbacks um, and uh, the freeze response and whatnot. I was essentially describing this, the physiological aspects of dealing with a past trauma, um, a memory that would come up in the body. And some, there was a combat veteran with me when that I was, uh, he was part of this discussion and it was just a casual talk over drinks. Um, but as I started describing what was happening physiologically in my body, uh, he started tearing up and I noticed right away and I had asked, you know, what's going on? Are you all right? And he had said that I had described everything that he's felt in his body since his time in Iraq, um, the things that he saw in war and in combat. Right. And so that immediately built this rapport where he had said, Hey, I, I want to tell you some stuff about what happened in war, things that I've never told another person. Um, you know, my family doesn't know, my wife doesn't know. I have never told a behavioral specialist because, you know, there's this not only like a stigma, of course, that's going away, we're addressing it really well. The more, you know, people like you and I speak about this, the stigma gets weaker and weaker, right? Which Mm -hmm. is awesome. And that's why I'm so grateful for people like you who who are giving us a voice. But, um, yeah, he, uh, he said that he wanted to, um, chat with me about some of this stuff and, and I was an open ear. Of course I let him know. Hey, if, if you got to, if, if stuff really starts coming out, like it did with me, right, you're going to have to go see a professional. You're going to have to see a counselor. Um, this stuff can get dangerous quickly if it arises. And um, 
so we kept in touch and, and, you know, we're still in touch to this day. He's kind of a mentor of mine, but that opened the door for me wanting to write this book because I had seen so many men and women in uniform that have done so many amazing things, right. Have been in war zones and I don't see them. I want them to get on a soapbox and talk about this stuff. I want to give them a voice because there's so much seasoned wisdom that they've gained, right. That can allow us who haven't been to war to realize what really matters and what it comes down to is, you know, loving those next to you. And I know that's like a crazy word that we don't really talk about in a tactical <laughs> situation, but you know, mm -hmm. some combat vets told me that like one of my buddies, Austin, he wrote the foreword to this book. Um, 13 guys from his unit committed suicide. They died by suicide <laughs> after Afghanistan, right? 13. I mean, that's an insane number. Yeah. And one of the most profound things Austin told me was that um, in a war zone, love is the purest it's ever felt in his life because all he cared about was knowing that his brothers in arms came back from their movements, their con their patrols, their convoy movements in one piece, you know, that they're alive. Yeah. So it, and I know I'm rambling, but it's just, there's so much, there's so much like respect and admiration I have for these folks who I perceive to be quite voiceless in a lot of ways, because yeah. they're not attracting a spotlight. You know, they don't want that attention and they don't want to keep talking about the trauma they experienced, but they've allowed me to share parts of their story, which is a huge honor. And um, I feel like kind of how oral tradition passes down wisdom, you know, back in the day, can we do that now mm -hmm. through, through more books? And, and I'm not the only person writing books. I don't want to act like I'm God's gift, right? And there's plenty of wise people out there, but I'm just simply another voice in this crowd. Um, and we need to have more conversations because I mean, you've seen the suicide numbers, right? It's, yeah, yeah. they're really high and, and they deserve better. And I, I want to see more, um, more thriving in the ranks, mm -hmm. not just getting by, but actual people in uniform thriving, living their best life, self enriching, um, beyond what they anticipated. And I think the only way to do that is to give them vocabulary for the psychological aspect of their lives and tell them it's okay yeah. to discuss this stuff. Yeah, I think it starts at the top down and also from the bottom up, right? Um, I had posted on um, my practice's Instagram a video. There's this, uh, I'm not sure what branch he's in, but he's a, a funny military guy that does these hilarious, um, very relatable um, videos. And I had posted one about him pretending to talk to, to another service member about going to therapy. And it was funny in a dark kind of humor kind of way, because that's what we do. Um, but there was a lot of backlash from people who found the video about the stigma and just suck it down and be a man and all of this really suffocating rhetoric that you find um, a lot of which can be very um, toxic masculinity stuff. And um, it is quite disturbing because I feel like, you know, every time you see some movement, it's like, oh, we're getting somewhere. Like this is becoming more normalized to seek help and, and talk about it. Um, and then you find things like that and it's kind of disheartening. But going back to one of the things that you were saying about, you know, um, what meant a lot to some of these service members. I mean, I think about uh, being on deployment and I think about one of the best chiefs I ever had who I feel like <laughs> is a model for me for leadership. One of the biggest things that he did that meant a lot was coming around, sitting with you on your post and asking you about yourself. What's going on at home? What's, how are you? Um, and then telling you about his life back home. And it does create this like bond uh, that, you know, you can, you can take to the bank like that. I always say, you know, a lot of civilians don't understand the whole battle buddy concept, but 
nothing brings us closer together than staring down death together, you know? And I think that when you have somebody, especially in a leadership position, who is taking an interest and asking the right questions, I mean, that means everything. Yeah, there's no, there's no better feeling than in an austere environment, you know, validating somebody in a way that's just outside the job, right? It's outside of their performance. It's not, and I, it, when I was doing my uh, master's in psych, right, I came across this article, we had to write a prompt on um, transformational leadership versus transactional. And basically, mm. transformational leaders inspire us to reach beyond our own limits, because they validate us, they see us as human beings, they see us for our potential. And they make us feel worthy, they make us feel, I don't want to say make us feel, but they allow us to feel like we have awesome potential and that we're supported by them. And I think what that comes down to, I mean, I know what it comes down to because I've seen it in my soldiers' eyes and they've told me this, you know, they said the best thing a leader can do for us is just talk to us like we're people. If you talk to us like we're people and not rank, not a uniform, but you see us as individuals, we'll do anything for you. And I've witnessed that, you know, I saw this amazing loyalty from, from some of the soldiers under me. And I, I asked them, I'm like, look, you know, I'm not tabbed. I didn't go to ranger school. I didn't do a lot of stuff because the lockdowns had shut down a lot of the schools. And so I didn't have all these, you know, all the bells and whistles that so many people strive to have in the military. And I asked them, aren't, wouldn't you be more inspired to have a leader that has all these tabs that, that has all these credentials. And one of them, I write about this in the book. He, he uh, received a purple heart from, you know, wounds in combat. Right. So he, had everybody's respect, um, really quiet guy, very humble. And he said, he's like, Hey, sir, you know, the, the only thing we care about is having a leader who talks to us like we're people because we can do the job. You know, we know what we're doing. We're the subject matter experts as a leader. You just need to enable us. But he said, by Mm. you treating us like we're people, that's all we care about to keep you around. And I was blown away. I'm like, it can't be that simple. It really it is. is. It really is yeah. that simple. When I was in mobile security, and I realized that other branches are a little bit different the way that they're organized, but in the Navy, you don't really see your officers. <laughs> they sit in a room in the air conditioning somewhere, and the rest of us enlisted folk are the ones that are, you know, going on the deployment. Every now and then they do it just to get a sense of it, but like they're not really in the trenches. And so our, you know, it does create a sense of resentment that like, you don't know what this is like, but I think that wouldn't be so bad if they were connecting on some human level, you know, and that's just not the case. They're just not there, you know. You know, it's, so when I was talking to the soldiers, there were, there were some people And I don't, I want to be, you know, respectful and not give identities out or anything, but Mm -hmm. there were some individuals who had said, you know, back in my day, because I was super accessible to the soldiers. And the reason why is this, I knew suicidality was, was rising across the world because of the pandemic. And I had written on a board, my goals as a leader in my office. And I let the soldiers come in. They had access to come to my office. And the number one goal I said was never lose a soldier. And so they kind of poked fun, like, oh, what's that about? Like, we're not, you know, what are you talking about? Never lose a soldier. And I told them, I was like, look, I don't, I don't care what it is, a training accident, you know, suicidality, whatever. Like, I don't want to lose any of you. This is super important to me because I'm responsible to your parents. I'm responsible to your family. I'm not, you're not just cogs to be used. And, you know, I had somebody tell me who was pretty seasoned in the military, but um, created quite a bit of tension. Come to find out this individual was struggling with a lot of stuff at home. Um, a lot of, yeah, just, uh, a lot of pain inside, but, um, I was pulled aside by, by this person and they told me, uh, look, I don't want you talking to the soldiers like this. I don't want you giving them access to you. They shouldn't feel this comfortable talking to you and approaching you. And I'd said, I, that this is my leadership style a, so I'm not going to change my personality for you because uh, sorry, but this is who I am. And B, I'm keeping my finger on the pulse for mental health sake. Um, And I just, I was blown away at, you you know what really bothered me? How much, how much 
confusion that created in my life, how much cognitive dissonance that uh, introduced. Because mm-hmm. here I was building rapport with the soldiers and it felt pure. And, it, and I saw that that reciprocation, right? You know, in their, in their expression with me, we were open, we were honest and transparent. Because they look up to you. Well, and I was, I was, and I just, I looked up to them, which is crazy, but they did so much hard work. They would break their backs for, for us, right. For the command. And it made me love them even more because I didn't want to make them waste their time and get hurt and introduce risk, you know, because again, they're parents, right. They're brothers and sisters, they're husbands and wives, you know? So I try to look at them holistically, but as soon as this individual planted that in my, in my mind, I started second guessing myself, like, am I too accessible? Am I giving them too much of a voice? Am I weakening the military because I'm I'm going against an, an old tradition of don't ever allow this person to make eye contact with you. Don't ever allow this person to to be around you without standing at attention and being feeling that that kind of forceful, you know, authority. And that's just I, I look. I mean, I grew up as a child who didn't feel um, that I could open up to to authority figures. And I know what that created. I know the distance that created. I know the confusion in my heart. And I don't ever want to be somebody that does that to someone else. But what really threw me off was how much cognitive dissonance a comment like that made, you know, made in my life. Because this individual was close to me in, in the environment and let me know non-verbally and verbally that, you know, they wanted to see a different behavior. And it was this tension and that friction never went away. Um, but I will say this, I had soldiers come up to me privately and say, Hey, sir, I just want to let you know, we, we see you, we see what you're doing. We see that you care. Thank you. Um, one of them told me, I know, I know this person's going to try to burn you out. We know it. We know they're going to try to burn you out, but thank you. The fact that you may not be able to change stuff, but just the fact that you're, you showed up and you, you tried is enough. And that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book because I wanted to do more. I mm-hmm. wish I did more. I I did as much as I could and as much as I knew, but I wrote this book just to process the insanity, the the amount of complexity and the constellation of variables as mm. I say that that are tied to leadership and human psychology. It's such a good conversation because you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, the military is rich in tradition and um, formalities, but like, um, at at what point do we look at that and say, how's that working? How's that how's that working for you? Um, because I think what we're really talking about is recognizing that the rigidity of some of those roles, uh, it's not it's not sustainable. And in order to create environments where uh, troops feel cared for and can do the job and also feel um, supported, that rigidity kind of has to soften. You can't, I don't think you can have both, you know, because this is what happens. They end up dying by suicide. It's a fucking problem. So when my soldier... So Cody wrote the introduction to the book and he Mm -hmm. survived suicide. He's still alive today. I still check in on him. I check in on Austin. We we check in on each other, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. that's just part of the commitment, you know? And, um, somebody had said, uh, in relate in relation to what he was going through, um, you know, it's a cry for help. Don't give him attention. Um, you know, it's, if you now the person that said this, lo and behold, had a psychiatric break themselves. Of of course, because we only judge what is reflected in ourselves, right? Yes. It's projection. It comes out from, yeah, from inside. And it's, uh, like you said, rigid structures break, right? So rigidity, man, and this is, okay. So this is where there's no, I want to say there's no like right or wrong answer, but that's not the right terminology. What I'd rather say is there's a discussion to be had here because rigidity has its place, but so does flexibility. It's like, you need to have permeable walls, right? You don't just close off those walls. It's like you build a wall to build a healthy boundary, but you put doors in those walls and it's a two way door. That's kind of how I've learned it through, through therapy and psychology. And so when you see somebody that says, no, absolutely not. This is a one-way conversation. You're just going to listen to me, blah, 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 blah. You find out that person is self-medicating. 
you find out that person's depressed, there's domestic violence going on, there's depression, there's suicidality on their end. So what I noticed is that when individuals were extremely rigid in that regard, they were placing an undue weight on the backs of these young men and women who are in mm -hmm. uniform, right? Because they didn't heal, because they carry those scars and that damage, right? They're now making everyone else under them. They're creating that culture that says, so that means you have nothing to complain about. Because if this is the way I was raised up, this is what I suffered, then you're suffering the same thing. And that yeah. blew my mind. Because yeah. in recovery and in therapy, we always learn the cycle stops with me. That right. stuff I inherited, it's not going to be intergenerational anymore. It's going to stop with me. I'm going to deal with it. I can't fix that older generation because God knows they had the tools they had and they didn't have the knowledge and whatever it is. I can't fault them, right? But I yeah. can certainly say at this point, this is a new boundary. I'm not going to allow this behavior to, to bleed down and affect these young minds. And yeah. that's where I was torn up as a leader because it to me, it wasn't just move the convoy from this grid coordinate to this grid coordinate and you're going to execute such and such mission at this time. It's going to be a night movement. You're going to split the convoy up. This is all tactical stuff on a board that, mm -hmm. yes, it gets super complicated in itself. But on top of that, how are the guys and girls feeling? How How's their sleep cycle? How's their, you know their hobbies outside the military decompression are they decompressing at all or are we just punching them over and over with these mission sets and this tempo yeah. and not loving on them as human beings right yeah my experience in mobile security was that you know you would go on a deployment for three four months at a time those days were probably 14 hour days you don't get days off you're in shifts the whole time and then you get back to port and you might be in port for maybe a week before they send you back out and i had in two years i did 12 missions um i had and that chief that i was telling you about before every time we would come back um and he was our um, mission commander he would fight for us to get just 96 hours of off time that's it, because even when you're in port, they make you show up, they make you muster, they make you do whatever, stupid, busy shit. So you never actually have that much time off. Then you're sending them back out in the heat, in the middle of nowhere, no time off, no time to decompress. I knew guys that would get off shift and go to the gym. I'm like, who has time for that? I got to go to bed. So yeah, really caring about troops as human beings so that they can do the work because if you support them they'll do whatever you want and to your point before like there's of course this joke in the military about like the e4 mafia right the e4 mafia they take care of each other right they've had to learn how to you need something i got you to keep it in-house because they can't trust anybody above them to be able to support those needs. And that's sad. It's a joke, but it's really not funny when you think about it. Yeah, that's definitely true. And it's, it's amazing to me, like how much of this could be culture, how much of this could be a leader who's in power, who says, this is the way I operate. So, you know, there's some leaders that say, I don't take Christmas off. I don't take holidays. So therefore you're lucky if you get holidays off. Um, and there, there are other leaders that say, you know what, family's the number one thing. If you're in the military, we I want to put family first. And so it's interesting to see how much of these dynamics play out on an individual's idiosyncrasies, on an individual's either maybe maladaptive behaviors, right? Compensatory mechanisms to say, yeah. well, all I care about is how I look in uniform and I'm the brass now. So therefore, every single person under me has to operate the same way. Yeah. And that's, I wrote a chapter on this um, command about command climate. I have a buddy who's, um, he's a special operator and he talked about, how when you join the military, you the only thing that's going to dictate your life is command climate. You don't know if your leader is going to be awesome or if they're going to be horrible. And whatever you inherit, you're kind of stuck with it. The good thing is that there should be a, a quite a frequent turnaround rate with cer certain leadership positions. They're staggered. So it's like every sure. six months, every year, you should get a new leader and that could in inject some hope, right? But um, it's amazing to me how pervasive the culture can be, that trickle-down effect, right? If... If there's somebody who has enough rank and who has that posture in life, it's 
we're all going to feel it under them. And that's where resiliency really comes to play. That's where self-care really comes into play. And I mean, like you're saying, doing this 14 hour shifts and then can you, or can you not get a 96 hour, the uncertainty it's, it becomes what, what I noticed in the military is the practice of self-care became like micro movements. I mean, from inner dialogue to just journaling in the Humvee in between convoy movements, listening to audiobooks, um, not being around certain people to hear that negative echo chamber, mm. um, to then like having a salt bath, having, um, I don't know, getting a massage, doing stretches, doing yoga, whatever it is. Um, but I tried to tell the troops if things suck, yes, I get it. I'm not trying to deny the suck. It's going to be bad, but find ways to make your inner world a little less hellish, a little less, um, heavy, you know? And, uh, I don't know the right answer. You know, I don't, that's why, again, I love these discussions because I need to learn more on how to enable people. Do you know what I mean? Mm, this is, mm-hmm. especially when you're talking a war fighting function. I mean, when there's enemies that want to destroy our nation, we're going to do everything in our power to protect, protect ourselves and protect the world. I mean, the U S has stepped up in so many ways and this can be a complex discussion too, but I, I just, I believe in the mission. I believe in our military prowess as a nation. And yet at the same time, I also believe in the value of, loving on the men and women that we're leading. And I I don't know, it's just, it blows my mind how complex this gets. I mean, I think, you know, we have to find a a way for the military to evolve because as a culture, we're evolving. And we understand so much more about psychology and development than, than we ever have. And when you think about that, the majority of people that, and, and, I realize that you and I are some of the exceptions. Like I enlisted at 26. I think you went to OCS at uh, 32. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. But for the most part, the general uh, consensus is that most people are going in when they're 17, 18 years old. And your brain isn't even fully developed until you're 25, 26. So, you know, I think we have to take that into consideration with things like self-care and connection and relationship and all those things, because, you know, I think back to all the stuff we did and I'm like, oh my God, like some of these people were just babies, you know? And it's crazy how, like you said, it is going to absorb, it is going to impact how they do shit from there on out, you know, taking care of themselves or not. Yeah. And you know, I've struggled with my own self-medication, right? I was into alcohol a lot. I mean, drinking to not feel feelings type of Well, person, the military right? definitely I, doesn't do anything good about that. <laughs> yeah. So what's funny is when I joined the military, I wasn't drinking. Mm. So that gave me an even more deep purview perspective into who I used to be. So I would try to encourage my peers, like not judgmentally, right? I didn't want to say, Hey, you know, I'm the old guy with the wisdom and I used to drink and <laughs> you guys are dumb for doing this, but I would tell them, you know, so this is what I would say. I would tell people, cause a lot of us were into fitness, right? But then if you're battling hangovers and fitness, it's kind of, you're working against yourself. And so I would try to try to communicate the fact that, you know, you're worth having electrolytes in your body and staying hydrated and having a good rest cycle, explaining how when you're intoxicated, you don't, yeah, you pass out, but you don't hit REM. You don't hit deep sleep the same way. Your body doesn't recover. And so I just started having discussions on what self-medication looked like, you know, and I had some friends who unbeknownst to them were having, you know, seven, eight whiskeys a night to go to bed. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's, that's not healthy. Right. And I wasn't trying to judge them. I felt the pain. I, I could see that, um, they're trying to put a fire out that they were trying to quiet a nervous system down. Right. And it reminded me of who I, who I used to be, um, and who I have to constantly try to, to self-manage is not dissociate, not self-medicate, feel those bad feelings and allow them to surface and allow them to process. Because what I would do is like a tidal wave and a tsunami of alcohol, just drown it out. And how many, there's so many combat veterans I know 
who, who actively struggle because they, um, you know, they hear the voices in their mind of people crying out for help. They, they, mm-hmm. they remember those images and those smells. And, and before bed, when they put their head on the pillow is when those tapes start playing. And there's that survivor's guilt and all this stuff that just, it makes me want to give them an embrace and say, I'm sorry you feel this because you've sacrificed so much. You're normal. You're a human. You're, you have biological synaptic connections. There's neurophysiology behind this, but I, I want you to be healthier. I want you to work the process on, on recovering from this stuff, but it's yeah. so complex and it's so much easier to, to just drink or, you know, there's a lot that are actually doing, um, psilocybin now they're doing yeah. psychoactive drugs while in uniform, you know, and there it's a risky thing taking drugs and being in uniform, but there, mm-hmm. there's so many people I'm hearing that are saying we feel unsupported. We feel ashamed. Um, so we're going to go find a way to, to deal with this ourselves. And that's why I think these discussions on neuropsychology and on, you know, anything therapy related is so important because it gives them a toolkit of what can work for them, you know? Yeah. In our last podcast, um, my employee Athena and I talked about just, um, eating disorders in the military and like it, it just makes me think about, the basic needs or, you know, information being conveyed about how to actually take care of yourself. These are kids mostly, and they don't know outside of being at home with their parents, how to take care of themselves. What does it, like you were saying, what actually happens during REM cycle? Why is that so important? You know, we have such a culture around um, numbing out, you know, and to your point about like the fitness thing, we have jokes about, oh, you go PT, you puke because you drank last night and it's fine. Just keep going. Like, it's not funny. But of course, I think this is where that dark humor, um, you know, helps everybody sort of get through because it's, there's no support in actually teaching you, teaching you anything <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, that is important for your bodily and mentally health and mental health. So you know, aside from we could talk all day long about, you know, what the uh, military needs to change in terms of like helping us understand our physiology and all of this. But, but now I kind of want to turn the conversation into how does this all, how does all this information translate into the civilian corporate world? Like, well, leadership, I mean, as you know, first of all, anything we learn in psychology is universal, right? Because the human brain is the same computing mechanism in every single skull on the planet. And so that's what's awesome about psychology is that once you learn about the brain, these they're cross-disciplinary skill sets that carry over everywhere. So same thing with leadership, you know, so we talked about it earlier, right? Just be a good human being, be present, be validating of other people as human beings. And that's across cultures. I mean, Mm-hmm. We, every human wants to feel seen. Every human wants to feel heard. Mm-hmm. And, and it is a, a feeling state. It is. So what I, what I like to talk about is that, that visceral reaction we get from our gut, um, that's able to detect threats and, or safety. Um, it's a very primal feel that we have. And, and I want people to lean into that. To, I want leaders to know whether they're in the military or in the corporate world, be that person where other people feel that you primally nurture them, if that makes sense, that you're for them. Because mm-hmm. everybody knows when someone's being dis- disingenuine, when they're being inauthentic. Yeah. It's a visceral response. You you notice that the eye contact is off, that that tone in their voice, the tonality is condescending or there's some sort of detachment. This isn't something, and we know this because we were all children. We all know when our parents were being passive aggressive or angry. We all know what a tone of the voice sounds like. These are primal programming features of having a a, a biological mind, right? To survive, yeah. Exactly, and so for people to know that you, by the way you speak to others, by the way you conduct yourself, by the way you carry yourself, you can create an environment where no one's walking on eggshells. They don't have to be worried about their survival. They know they can make mistakes around you. They know they can be sincere around you, that you won't shame them. You know, it's so important to not create a shame culture because shame-based ideology causes people to isolate. It causes people to identify as their mistakes. I mean, that's why I drank so much. I identified 
as my, as a failure. I identified as the things I did incorrectly or wrong or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not the way to live life. The way to live life is to, to be a robust human being with the capability of failing forward and innovating and being thoughtful and creative is to, to kind of, um, to embrace the fact that you have the ability to make mistakes and grow. It all ties into that growth mindset. And again, all this stuff, what I, and I'll stop after this, what I love about psychology and, you know, leadership and neurophysiology and interpersonal dynamics, it's all married together. You can't enrich one without enriching the entire system. And that's why I think it's so worth it to, to pursue growth in e- any of these areas. Cause if you grow as a leader, you're going to grow as a, as an intimate partner, you're going to grow as a, as a roommate or as an employee, the organization systemically will improve because you improved individually by being healthy. That's right. That's right. So cool. Yeah. It's such a cool concept. Yeah. Or you'll just make better choices about the company you keep too, you know? Ab- yes, absolutely. Um, going back to stigma and, you know, the response to that funny video that I had posted not too long ago, it's like, that's always the thing. And I, I hear this because I work with not just veterans, but um, first responders too, right? Um, there's too much stigma. There's too much stigma. Okay. But like the only way to change that is to be brave. That's it. And if we all be brave together, then there isn't stigma anymore. But like some people are going to have to put themselves out there, you know, and that's why I appreciate you telling your story and and talking here because the only way for us to get rid of it is to be brave. We all know how to do that in the military. We've done that. We can do it this way too. I was talking to um, another guest that was on the podcast not too long ago, was also in the military and is now a therapist. And we were talking about like, you know, battle buddies don't, like we were fighting a war. Now we're, now the attention is what's going on at home, what's going on inside. And to create this new culture of like, that's now, that's the new battle buddy now. Like to have that kind of support in those um, dark moments or just, you know, to make sure we're taking care of ourselves so that we can have that, you know, uh, you know, that grow growth culture, that growth mindset in our culture. Yeah, definitely. One, one thing you said earlier that really kind of touched, touched my heart a bit was, um, when you talked about, um, you know, being brave, which is a incredible compliment. So I'm just going to kind of say <laughs> thank you for that, but also push back a little because, uh, you know, to be honest with you, when the book, so I was granted approval by the Pentagon to release my book in, in January. It took me eight months to get over the shame of what I wrote in the book because I wrote about self-medication. I wrote about my own ego deficits. I wrote about some pretty, um, some trauma that happened in my life. Um, and I wasn't too explicit, but it was more than I've ever shared before. And, um, mm-hmm. I felt that the reason why I shared it, cause I thought is, am I oversharing? Is this, is this TMI? Am I violating my own boundary doing this? But I thought I've had some conversations with, with men and women in my platoon about trauma they suffered. And we had this exercise where we were open about stuff. I mean, it was, they talk about rough lives that these young kids came from. Right. Um, but after that day, I mean, there, there were tears, there were embraces and there was so much support for one another that says, I have your back. Talk about battle buddies. It was after that day we had this amazing, and it was because there was suicidality, right? Rising up in the ranks. And so we wanted to have this moment of let's just let it all hang out. Let's, let's be super honest with each other. And let's guys, let's, let's, hear each other's voices right now, right? So we talked about everything from racial segregation, socioeconomic differences, cultural differences, gender differences. I mean, everything was on the table, right? And so when I wrote this book, I put a lot, these soldiers inspired me. You know, these, these soldiers really, really impacted my life. But I was scared when I, when I published this book, I felt so ashamed. I felt like, man, I, I, I should just kill this project. I should just not publish it, remove it off Amazon. Um, and it took me eight months to get to a point where I emailed you 
you're one of the first people to respond to me. And, um, I just want anybody else who feels scared, who feels fear because you're a human being. And that's again, a biological reaction. There's no judgment in that feeling, right? It's just data. It's information. Um, I'm with you. You know, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to feel isolated, um, or feel like, oh, I couldn't get there because I never thought I would open up about the stuff I've opened up about. Um, so yeah, again, thanks for giving me a voice, but I, and I, and I just want to let other people know, like, if I can do it, you can do it too. So it's a battle, yeah. you know? I think it's important to note that, you know, in saying things like be brave, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's just doing the thing anyway. Right. So, that. so there's always going to be some, there's always going to be some part of us that's freaking out because we're being vulnerable and showing our insides. And, you know, there's a nakedness to that, that, yes. um, but I also, I think, you know, we've all come to understand that the most powerful words in the world are me too. And I think when we put ourselves out to be vulnerable, what we're, what we're connecting with, the people that connect with that message are saying, I get that. That's me too. You know, and I think that's how we heal, you know? Yeah. What do they as say a, that, um, as a community. We're wounded, we're wounded socially and we heal socially. Yeah, it's, it's really big in therapy. You got to heal in community. You need people around you because, and I've done this. I've read books. I've read over like 450 books. If you consider um, audiobooks as books, then yes, mm -hmm. about 500 at this point. But that's a defense mechanism. It's me being cerebral, so I can, so I can describe a feeling academically, but I don't have to feel it. Right. That was my guard because I. It was devastating. The stuff that I experienced it was at such a young age. Um, it was overwhelming, you know, a lot of this yeah. stuff could be even like pre-verbal, you know? And so there mm -hmm. wasn't a way for me to verbally express what I'm feeling. It's just an overwhelming feeling state. And, um, again, this is so crazy because I felt this stuff when I was younger. Right. But then I talked to a combat vet and they say, this is exactly what I feel. And that's the beauty of this. The beauty of this kind of brokenness is that I'm all jacked up from a different set of, you know, environmental factors that, a brother or sister in arms is jacked up from, but yet when mm. we meet and discuss, we can see eye to eye. And that's the beauty of this connection of this, of like writing a book like this is the process of me getting to talk to somebody who I look up to as a hero, even though they wouldn't say it and they cringe at that word. Um, the fact that they'd look at me and say, Hey, thanks for describing what I felt. I didn't have the words for it, but you just gave me something to think about. There's yeah. nothing cooler than, than, taking what I went through, the stuff that I wish never happened to me and pulling something good out of it and giving mm -hmm. that to someone else. Cause that's redemptive, right? That makes it mm -hmm. worth it for me. Then I don't have to be ashamed of the past because guess what? That my biggest weakness can now be my biggest strength. If I can, if I can intelligently work through it, you know, work through the process and, and be vulnerable, allow those ugly cries to come out when they come out. Right. That's the hardest part yeah. is the grief. Yeah. That's the hardest yeah, part. Yeah. And I, I think of it just like that, that like, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, the grief case is coming with you. And so whatever, <laughs> whatever childhood stuff that you've endured, it will come out sideways sometime in your adulthood if it's not nope. attended to before that. And so, and oftentimes it is the predisposition that leads people to get things like PTSD and other um mental health issues. And so, you know, I think by not being silent about these things anymore, we normalize the, the normal reaction to abnormal circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. And so other people can, you know, in many different ways understand, you know, basically, in the end, we don't have to understand the exact experience in order to be compassionate or in order to recognize that someone's struggling. And on a yeah. human level, we all know what that's like. Yep. And, I, and this is what I love. If anybody has, you know, if they're just like so averse to talking about warm and fuzzy feelings, think about the neurophysiology. 
Think about the engineering, the hard wiring of the brain. Because like you said, if someone's struggling, you don't have to think about empathizing. You don't have to think about soft feelings. If that makes somebody feel insecure, vulnerable, or whatever it is, look, just think about it as the biology. Your nervous system has a radar. It picks up what someone else is feeling. This is this is what mirror neurons do, right? We have these subconscious levels of understanding um, what somebody else's state is. And it's like if you go into a, an office, right, a, a room, and there's somebody that walks in who's really rigid and just angry and blah, you know, whatever it is. Guess what? Your radar, and this happens in the military, we pick up on that right away like, uh-oh, this person's in the room, right? It's primal. It's like a wolf pack situation. Mm-hmm. And so there's no denying as much as people want to say like, well, I don't, you know, I don't believe in all the feeling stuff or I think that just makes people walk around playing the victim and all of that. Look at the fact that we do have these these radars built into our, our nervous system. It, it's there in the lobes of our brains. So there's no denying that you have the ability to be empathetic and it's not about weakness. This is about strengthening other people. This is about resilience. It's not about saying you don't stay in that state of grief indefinitely. And I think that's the, the stigma, the self stigma that I put there, right? Is when my friend told me he's a DEA agent and he was like, I need you to go see my therapist because I was depressed. I was in a dark place because of some memories coming out um, during jujitsu, having some flashbacks. I got really depressed. I got really, yeah, it was a dark time in my life. And when he told me that, go see my therapist, I was like, men don't see therapists. What? That's allowed? I mean, I felt so much shame come up saying, because I was told when I was abused at a younger age, you're never going to tell anyone about this. Don't ever tell anybody what happened here. Don't you ever open your mouth about what I did to you or what, right? I mean, those messages were deep, right? I would rather lose my life than violate that you know, what I was told abusively, that's how dark this can get. Mm-hmm. So when he broke that, he shattered that, that paradigm for me and said, go, go see a therapist. I was like, okay, so here's a badass DEA agent. Who's an awesome person I look up to. And he has a therapist. Therefore there is no stigma on men seeing therapists. I can talk about feelings. Right. Um, and I know I'm on a rant right now, but no, yeah, go. this is just, uh, this is Keep just going. That's good. For, <laughs> it's super important for people to understand that this is about strengthening yourself. Um, yeah. It's not about yeah being stuck in a place of grief. Because I thought once I saw the therapist, I'm going to be this mopey person who's like, oh no, I'm you know. But that's not what it was. You get through the grief, yeah. and then that that piece of information, that memory, although that psychological scar still exists, that's it's 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 a scar. It's no longer an right. open bleeding wound. Right. And so that's what I didn't understand. I was walking around life with these open wounds. I didn't know that when they become scars through the grief process, those scars then become my story. But just like a scar heals a little bit thicker in its, in its, you know, density and whatnot, you're, you're that much more robust. And Mm -hmm. I, I failed to understand that concept when I was self-medicating. It wasn't until I sobered up and said, I'm willing to grieve and trust the process because that sucked. It was so hard to let go of my ego and cry in front of another grown man. I mean, just tears drenching my shirt, snot coming out, Mm -hmm. straight ugly crying. And I'm looking at him just taking notes like, yeah, significant signs of childhood abuse and Mm -hmm. just all this stuff where I'm like, dude, can you explain what, what's, what just happened? What's pouring out of my face? And he's like, Mm. congratulations. That's, that's called a feeling. And you have not felt your feelings in over a decade. And I'm just, wow. Um, And I I will say this last part. Um, I don't blame anybody for being, for self-medicating. I don't blame people for their addictions. I don't blame people for running away from their problems. I don't because it's so much easier to do that as someone who's done it for a long time. It's so much easier to numb out, but it could kill you. And if anything, it could ruin your life because you won't be authentic, but don't feel ashamed of it. Um, understand you're not alone in it. And and perhaps that will open the door to you taking yeah. a step out. But it, that shame kept me locked up. Do you know what I'm saying? And yeah. I, I just don't want anyone to feel like I'm some sort of like psych policeman. That's like, you're doing the wrong thing. It's like, you might just be surviving and that's, yeah. that's okay for now. But I mean, it, it, it you know. 
it feels easier in the moment, but when we're talking long term, it's exhausting right. to keep up those mechanisms or those ways of numbing. And um, you know, it, expending that kind of energy, um, you know, uh, Brene Brown always says that like. If you numb one emotion, you numb them all. Yep. You don't get yes. to pick you, and choose. You shut the aperture. I love how she says that. You close the aperture on bad feelings and good feelings. Yeah. And so Amazing. what kind of quality of life is that, right? right? And so when people come to see me, number one, I think it helps that I am a veteran, right? I speak the language. I curse a lot in here. And everybody seems <laughs> to feel comfortable <laughs> with that. Um, but also on top of having the cultural aspect, like, no, there is no judgment. I get it. I get exactly why you would do that. Let's understand it together a little bit more. And I also use EMDR therapies so that all those painful memories, you know, it's, it's a quick way to reprocess that stuff and finally put it away where it goes so that you can leave here and actually have a life, a life worth living again, right. you know? And so, yeah. Yeah, I always tell people, my buddy, and I, t I give him multiple shout outs. Whenever I give a talk, um, his name is JP Lane, and he was, he, he uh, is a double amputee from a 200 pound IED. <sighs> and he always tells people when they thank him for a service, um, he says, You're worth it. And it, it just oh, brings I tears to people's that. eyes. And I told him, I was like, Bro, that. I got to steal that from you, but I'll give you credit. So, Whenever, says, whenever somebody says like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in this, you know, depression, I'm stuck in this suicidality, I don't feel worthy, I, I you know, I'm just an alcoholic or whatever it is, I, I want to say you're worth it. You're worth getting mm -hmm. better. You're worth the growth and the self-enrichment. It's not selfish. Self-care to people who've suffered abuse and been have carried just tremendous amounts of trauma or any trauma really we we feel so unworthy of self-care it feels like a dirty word like i care for others other people are deserving but me now i'm i'm too dirty for that i'm too i'm, I'm garbage i don't deserve self-care and it's this toxic thought that we carry that we've been told by other people and i just mm -hmm. want that i want to help other people and myself break out of that like you're yeah. worth it i'm worth it because the more we self-care again, systemically around us, we're raising everybody else up. Believe it or not, you're making the world around you a better place by you having those better sleep cycles, by you having a better diet, a healthier diet without overconsumption of alcohol, without numbing out from drugs. Um, there's just so much that as your body, as your soul heals, you'll be then a light for others around you. So, if, yeah. but again, don't feel alone. If you hear those thoughts and you feel those, especially the combat vets who struggle with suicidality from, mm -hmm. you know, the brothers and sisters I was able to talk to, you're not alone. Um, even though you feel it, it's okay to feel alone. Just know that you're not, this is yeah. where you kind of, you know, as a psychologist, you can explain this where you kind of reframe that, right? Like, I know I feel alone. I know I feel all these feelings, but that's, that's not who I am. And then you work on that reframe. Um, mm -hmm. And this is stuff I'm still growing through myself. I'm, I'm in it. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like I'm not healed. I'm well, not yeah. on some mountaintop. So, no. And I think that it's important to recognize that this is always a process. That we are always works in progress. And you know, I tell all my clients the best therapists have therapists. Because if you think your shit doesn't stink, you're not breathing in deep enough, right? Everybody's got wow. shit. It's just mm -hmm. different shit. You know, but right. imagine the world we would be living in if everybody just dealt with their shit. <laughs> you know, we would be kinder towards each other, more yes. empathetic, helping each other. And the world, our, our culture would be able to heal from the eons of trauma that that has had, you know, yep. on it as just Americans in the world, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, there's awesome. there's layers here. Definitely. Yeah. Well, anything else that you want to point out about the book to kind of highlight that? Because um, I think we've honestly, talked so much about it. Yeah, it's so hard to, to talk about the book in the sense of, hey, go pick up a copy, go read it. Because, you know, look, you know, Cody wrote the intro, having survived suicide. Austin wrote the foreword, having lost 13 brothers to suicide. It This isn't it almost feels like wrong to try to push it and market it. So, but I would want to say 
um, you can check out a few chapters of the book on my website for free. You can preview it. Um, if anybody feels like they need a battle buddy, pick up a copy of the book. I'll, I'll say that. Um, cause then that makes me feel like I'm not selling a product. I'm more, I want people to heal because of the stories in it. Um, but again, I'm still dealing with almost the guilt of it, if that makes sense. And somebody told mm -hmm. me this the other day, she said, she's like, Hey, I just want to affirm something real quick, you, you know, or validate something you're going through. You realize you're going to pick up some of the, the trauma that other people are telling you, right? You're going to feel the weight. You can't hear these stories in private that these people have experienced in war and then just walk around like there's no weight to that. And mm -hmm. so I suppose... And, you know, thank you for letting me be here in a conversation with you as I'm actively struggling. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm actively struggling with like pushing a book as a product, knowing that there was so much literal blood, sweat, and tears that, that poured into it. And, um, I don't think it's that dramatic of a piece necessarily in, in the, in a literary sense, but the feeling state that I had pouring into it is what really is just in my mind right now. It's so hard for me to say, um, I want everybody to get a copy of my book because it's almost like, I, I wish you didn't have to get a copy of the book. I wish that we didn't have to talk about all the, the maladaptive behaviors that our leaders in this world have, regardless of organization from private to government, anything, um, so it's it's sort of like if you need a dose of medicine and you feel stuck and you feel alone then then grab a copy and you know um i hope it helps i certainly hope it helps heal people because that's the mission here you know yeah, it's not yeah. just entertainment it's to create that wave right that ripple effect of these the mentors i write about in the book they help change me right they help strengthen me and allow me to reach into vulnerability. And I want to give that gift to others if I can. So if, if anybody would allow me to be part of the process, I'd be honored to be part of it, you know? Yeah. And just something to you personally, um, in the therapy world as therapists, there's uh, a concept called vicarious trauma that we are all supposed to be kind of very aware of that when, you know, especially as a trauma and grief therapist, when people describe their experiences, I am literally picturing it in my head. And because of that, we run the risk of having vicarious trauma, which can manifest in PTSD-like symptoms. And so it's all the more important when you're doing something like this, when you're collecting stories, when you're going through your own healing, that you make sure you take care of yourself too. So thank you. You know, yeah, keep I'm gonna doing go do some jujitsu today um, because that's my place of healing. And just talking yeah. to you and seeing these feelings rise up, because I, I remember my soldiers' faces, I remember their voices, I remember the stories and the weight of hearing what people have shared with me and stuff that even didn't make it into the book because it's just too explicit, right? It's too heavy. Um, I those feelings come up now as I'm talking to you and just cause like, you know, I love therapy, right? So I'm telling you like as a therapist, this is what's happening. But then when I go to jujitsu, I work those feelings out, you know? And, um, one of my best buddies is there on the mats. Um, I'm going to meet him today and he's somebody I've been able to tell explicitly, Hey bro. And he's a black belt in judo and a black belt in jujitsu. This guy's a, a monster, right? But I've been <laughs> able to tell him I have anxiety issues. I get weird breathing patterns. You're going to have to remind me, stop hyper breathing, hyperventilating up upper chest, breathe diaphragmatic belly breath, slow down. He's, mm. he eases me back into my body. He never makes me feel shame. He helps me feel like I have somebody there to love and support me. Um, and so again, if that's, that's sort of me putting this into practice, like you're saying, right, go pursue that self-care. I mm. know I need that now more than ever. As I talk more about this stuff, I need those outlets to, so I can avoid self-medicating. Um, and yeah, so I, I hope absolutely. that's sort of a lesson in practice for others. And I don't, I don't get it right all the time. I still dissociate. I still want to self-medicate, but I do my best to remember like program and schedule that self-care. So that way it's, it's hard wired. It's programmed into my day, you know? Yeah. And there's an accountability for it too, which is, you know, something we don't always have once we're out of the military. <laughs> But so that mm -hmm. discipline, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
I appreciate you so much coming and talking about all of this with me and taking the time all the way on the other side of the country. And I've loved this conversation so much and I'm excited to put it out there. So thank you. Thank you so much. Seriously, this is so cool. Uh, again, you're, you know, one of the first people to give me a voice like this. And, um, it's just, it's like a heartfelt connection, um, on behalf of the soldiers. Right. And I want them to know, like if any of my old, my former soldiers from first platoon are listening to this, this is for you, the guys and girls in that platoon. Um, like, thank you for, for, to them for giving me the inspiration to write the story. And thank you to you for uh, through, through me allowing their their voices to speak is what I hope I'm I'm going to carry forward. Yeah, yeah, it's been my honor and my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in connecting with Heather or the guest today, please see the show notes for that info. If you'd like to be a guest on the Symmetry Sessions, the link to send us your request is also in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to show some support, buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash symmetry sesh, S-Y-M-M-E-T-R-Y-S-E-S-H. You can make a small donation to help keep the episodes coming. And when you buy me a coffee, you're supporting small business professionals and podcasters. Every donation helps me to get better podcasting equipment and network to find new and interesting guests. Don't miss an episode. The Symmetry Sessions launches every first Friday of the month. So make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.